0: This is the Padre Peregrina podcast, Theology from a Wandering Priest, where you can learn Scripture from the Fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of Apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is RCT number 19, The Hidden Mysteries. RCT stands for the Roman Catechism of Trent. We are in pages 48 to 50 today. You may have heard that new audio bumper there. That is what you will hear before each podcast. I love the South African accent, and so I asked a traditional Catholic in that country of South Africa, who I'm Facebook friends with, to do that bumper. Hope you like it, because it will be the opening of every podcast. Now, I know regular listeners don't always like bumpers to any podcast, because it gets repetitive, but... It is an intro to new listeners, so please keep leading people to this podcast if you like it, and give a rating on Apple or your podcast app if you would. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Rumble in case I get deplatted on YouTube. God give you his peace, and nomine patris sefiri, et spiritu san amen. O heavenly King, comforter spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of good things, and giver of life. Come and dwell in us and cleanse us of all impurity and save our souls, O good one. In nomine patris et santi. Amen. The Roman Catechism of Trent continues on Types and Prophecies of the Conception and Nativity. The mysteries of this admirable conception and nativity being therefore so great and so numerous, it accorded with the plan of divine providence to signify them by many types and prophecies. Hence the Holy Fathers understood many things which we meet in the sacred scriptures to refer to these mysteries, particularly that gate of the sanctuary which Ezekiel saw closed in Ezekiel 44.2, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, which became a great mountain and filled the universe of which we read in Daniel 2.35, the rod of Aaron, which alone budded of all the rods of the princes of Israel in number 17.8, and the bush which Moses saw burn without being consumed, Exodus three two, the holy evangelist, describes in detail the history of the birth of Christ in Luke 2, but as the pastor can easily recur to the sacred volume, it is unnecessary for us to say more on the subject. Lessons which this article teaches, the pastor should labor to impress deeply on the minds and hearts of the faithful these mysteries which were written for our learning, as we read in Romans 15.4, Then, by the commemoration of so great a benefit, They may make some return of gratitude to God, its author, author and next, in order to place before their eyes, as a model for imitation, this striking and singular example of humility. Okay, me again here. Notice that the RCT there says the pastor. Who is this pastor? Well, you have to remember the catechism was written to priests in the 16th century in Europe for them to distill down the faith to the faithful. So they wouldn't literally read from the pulpits what I just did, saying things like, the pastor should labor to impress deeply. But since I'm reading you the entire Catechism of the Council of Trent, or the Catechism of Pius V, with my own words added in, I just decided to read you through the year, or two years, or three years, however long this takes, every single word that is actually in the Roman Catechism of Trent verbatim. That way you know there's nothing secret there, uh, just explaining who this mysterious pastor is. Okay, now you heard the word typology. Probably half of you know what the word typology means, but it's really basic. Many people try to make it too complex of a thing, and there are a lot of complex um, connections, but the definition is very simple. Typology is simply connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, usually typology is between two different characters or two different figures. And by characters, I don't mean People who aren't historically there i mean they're literally historical people but there's amazing connections that the holy spirit has written in to the connections between the old testament and the new testament so we have these different figures like um the savior the people who the person who's saving the um the israelites physically at one point in the old testament is joshua and as we've talked about before there's a lot of connections to jesus whose name means the same thing who is leading the people across the jordan which is baptism into the promised land Israel, which is heaven, and he's their savior. So there's a lot of neat typology there. There's also even typology by people of the same name, Joseph of the Old Testament, with a lot of really great connections to Joseph of the New Testament. But there's also some astonishing types and prophecies between the Old Testament and world history. Not just Old Testament and New Testament, but Old Testament and world history. Now, we just read in the Roman Catechism of Trent a very small but important reference to Daniel chapter 2 there. Now, you might remember the king of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. He has this dream, and in his courts is this Jewish exile named Daniel. This goes all the way back to the 6th century, so 600 years before Jesus is born. We have a really astonishing prophecy that's going to affect Jesus and the Catholic Church and the entire, well, really all of world history, but especially the Mediterranean world at the time. So listen to this quote from Daniel chapter 2. This is Daniel describing to the king of Iraq at the time, king of Babylon, what he just saw in a dream. He says, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw, that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this the dream is certain and its interpretation sure so what does all of this mean well babylon or iraq is there ruling over the mediterranean world in the sixth century bc that is the head of gold in what you just read or heard and then the second kingdom in the prophecy that is king cyrus in persia or modern day iran which then really happened in history then it really was persia to rule over the mediterranean world then ruling over that world became alexander the great coming in through the greeks that is the greek empire that is the kingdom of bronze exactly as daniel prophesied it many many hundreds of years before it happened or i guess it'd be 400 years before it happened and then the kingdom of iron and possibly clay that is the roman empire and then what happens to the roman empire well a small stone which is jesus christ himself collapses the roman empire as Rome becomes the center of his mysterious kingdom. So listen again to what I just read regarding what Christ and the first Christians would be to the Roman Empire prophesied 600 years before Jesus is born. And yes, it's the Roman Empire who kills Jesus and the Christians, but ultimately their love conquers Rome. Listen again to Daniel 2. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, and then he names all of the different stones that represent those kingdoms, Iraq, Iran, Greece, and especially Rome. Pretty much everyone is agreed uh, on these different empires. So notice the God of heaven sets up a kingdom in Rome that shall never be destroyed. That Roman kingdom that shall never be destroyed, of course, is the Catholic Church, established by that tiny stone from a mountain hewn by no human hands. That would be Mary. And that stone collapses the Roman Empire by might? No, by charity. The charity of Christ and the charity of the Roman martyrs establishing in Rome this kingdom, which would live forever. So that means Christ is the king of all of these empires, all these empires named in the Mediterranean, all the empires across the globe. This is why we we as traditional Catholics speak of the social reign of Christ the King. It's one thing to speak of Christ as the King of all the hearts of Christians, which is certainly true, but he's also King of all the nations. And we see this prophesied all the way back in Daniel chapter 2, all the way at the beginning of Roman Catechism of Trent, page whatever, forty-eight, right here. And so the fact that Daniel himself, this prophet, 600 years before Christ, the fact that Daniel interpreted a pagan king's dream, 600 years before Jesus was born, that this stone would come from a mountain, not hewn by human hands, that's Jesus coming from Mary, and that this would supplant a Roman um, Empire that actually, by the way, conquered the Jews, Daniel being a Jew, this is no coincidence. Think about it. Daniel predicted God's own tiny little stone would overturn the Roman Empire in the Middle East, and not only, not only before Jesus was born, but even before the Romans had begun to conquer. So this is just one of hundreds of prophecies of the Old Testament that Christ has fulfilled, not only upon the Jews, but for the entire world at large, especially at this time in history, upon the Mediterranean world. And again, that's all in Daniel chapter 2. The Catechism, again, writes about the humility and poverty of Christ. What can be more useful, what better calculated to subdue the pride and haughtiness of the human heart than to reflect frequently that God humbles himself in such a manner as to assume our frailty and weakness in order to communicate to us his glory that God becomes man and that he at whose nod, to use the words of scripture, the pillars of heaven tremble and are affrighted, Job 26:11, bows his supreme and infinite majesty to minister to man that he whom the angels adore in heaven is born on earth. When such is the goodness of God towards us, what, I ask, should we not do to testify our obedience to his will? With what willingness and alacrity should we not love, embrace, and perform all the duties of humility? The faithful should also consider the salutary lessons which Christ at his birth teaches before he begins to speak. He is born in poverty. He is born a stranger under a roof not his own. He is born in a lonely crib, he is born in the depth of winter. For St. Luke writes as follows, And it came to pass that when they were there, her, Mary's days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. See Luke chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Could the evangelists have described under more humble terms the majesty and glory that filled the heavens and the earth He does not say there was no room in the inn, but there was no room for him who says, The world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Psalm 49.12 As another evangelist has expressed it, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John 1.11 The elevation and dignity of man. The Catechism continues, When the faithful have placed these things before their eyes, Let them also reflect that God condescended to assume the lowliness and frailty of our flesh in order to exalt man to the highest degree of dignity. This single reflection, that he who is true and perfect God became man, supplies sufficient proof of the exalted dignity conferred on the human race by the divine bounty, since we may now glory that the Son of God is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, a a privilege not given to angels, for nowhere says the apostle doth he take hold of the angels but of the seed of Abraham he taketh hold Hebrews 12:16 Do you ever realize how amazing that is that of the billions and possibly trillions of angels two thirds of whom never fell God himself never became an angel but he did become a baby for us and the catechism continues with the duty of spiritual nativity We must also take care lest to our great injury It should happen that just as there was no room for him in the inn at Bethlehem in which to be born, so likewise now, after he has been born in the flesh, he should find no room in our hearts in which to be born spiritually. For since he is most desirous of our salvation, this spiritual birth is the object of his most earnest solicitude. As then, by the power of the Holy Ghost, and in a manner superior to the order of nature, he was made man and was born. Was holy, and even holiness itself, so does it become our duty to be born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God, John 1 13, to walk as new creatures in newness of spirit, Romans 6 and 7, and to preserve that holiness and purity of soul which so much becomes men regenerated by the Spirit of God. Thus we shall reflect some faint image of the holy conception and nativity of the Son of God, which are the objects of our firm faith and believing, which we revere and adore the wisdom of God, in a mystery which is hidden. See 1 Corinthians 2.7. So notice today, today is all about, first of all, God's humility. How do we even use those two words in the same sentence? God's humility. I think it's St. Francis of Assisi who has an entire poem that's been turned into some Franciscans even by a song. Look at the humility of God. When you look at the Eucharist, Uh, St. Francis of Assisi would say, look at the humility of God. It's it's very strange for us to even use those two words in the same sentence, but this is why Mary was raised uh, to such a high level. It's one of the many reasons why Mary um, was raised to the dignity of even being the mother of God is because of her tremendous humility. Of course, it was a, a gift that was given to her before all of time, but it coordinates, it's commensurate to her humility, as I'm going to read you in Divine Intimacy. And so when we understand or even begin to ask God to understand this great paradox of his majesty and his humility, well, of course, our spectacles into this, our binoculars into this is the life of Mary. And since May is the month of Mary and many of us are reading divine intimacy, well, on this topic of humility before God's majesty, I want to read you what divine intimacy says about how we can even begin to imitate Mary's humility to obtain more graces from God, this God who is the God of both majesty and humility, amazingly. And so we will close with these, some of my favorite quotes from Divine Intimacy. From day number 176 called Mary's Humility, Father Gabriel writes, her thoughts did not linger over the immense honor that would be hers as the woman chosen from all women to be the mother of the Son of God, But she contemplated in wonder the great mystery of a God who willed to become incarnate in the womb of a poor creature. If God wished to descend so far as to give himself to her as a son, to what depths should not his little handmaid abase herself? St. Bernard says, If you cannot equal Mary's absolute purity, at least imitate her humility. The virtue of chastity is admirable, but humility is essential. I think he means celibacy, as we're going to hear here. A simple invitation calls to the first. He that can take, let him take it. For the second, we have an absolute command. Unless you become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Chastity, therefore, will be rewarded. Humility will be demanded. We can be saved without virginity, but not without humility. Even Mary's virginity would not have been pleasing to God without humility. Mary certainly pleased God by her virginity, but she became his mother because of her humility. That's from St. Bernard, a doctor of the church. She became his mother because of her humility. Then Father Gabriel has this stunning line. He says, Lucifer was pure but not humble, and pride was his downfall. The higher the place we occupy in the Savior's vineyard, the higher the life of perfection we profess, and the more important the mission which God has entrusted to us, the deeper we need to plant the roots of humility. Mary's maternity was the fruit of her humility. humilitate concepit, she conceived in humility. And then St. Teresa of Avila, also known as St. Teresa of Jesus, writes this, No queen forces the king of heaven to give himself, as does humility. It was humility that drew him down from heaven into the virgin's womb. And then we close with this prayer of St. Bernard, which is essentially him saying this to the Blessed Virgin Mary. He writes, O Virgin, glorious stem, to what sublime height do you raise your corolla? Straight to him who is seated on the throne, to the God of Majesty. I do not wonder, since you are so deeply rooted in humility. Hail Mary, full of grace. You are truly full of grace, for you are pleasing to God, to the angels, and to men, to men by your maternity, to the angels by your virginity. To God by your humility it is by your humility that you attract the glance of God of him who regards the humble but looks at the proud from afar as satan's eyes are fixed on the proud so god's eyes are on the lowly please say an our father for me that i can practice what i preach et benedictio de patris et filii et spiritu sancti descendit super et semper amen